0: Hello, I'm Sean Fallon. I promise that this will be the only time you hear about me and what I do. I'm a consultant at The Clearing. I've got an awesome job. I travel the country helping leaders navigate technically and socially complex challenges in service of causes that really matter. At The Clearing, we make it our business to be at the forefront of leadership. We are constantly inquiring into what makes leaders extraordinary, and we share it with whomever will listen hence the podcast. In this series, I go out and gather the wisdom of today's leaders, leaders who are working on the stickiest challenges in existence to prepare for leading tomorrow. This first episode starts with a conversation about science, technology, engineering, and math, or as it's more commonly known, STEM. As you'll learn, we're headed towards a major talent gap with far-reaching implications if no action is taken. I talk to leaders in the business world and academia about their perception of the gap and the potential consequences. However, the conversation quickly turns to something much larger. We start to see how STEM fields are an integral part of the greater industrial ecosystem. We gain insights on what makes a STEM job great or any job for that matter. We also get a peek into the transforming education system And we begin to understand the essence of what future STEM leaders will need to know if they want to emerge from the other side. It's a great episode, so stick around. Welcome to Pushing the Perimeter. Human beings have
1: always screwed things up. The the human story is a story of striving and
2: tragedy and death. The single biggest issue facing the world today is jobs. What the whole world wants today.
0: STEM has been a hot topic for many years now. Type it into your search bar and you'll find any number of articles on the growing need for STEM education. But why all the fuss? Well, the facts are sobering. According to the Brookings Institute, only 16 percent of students graduating high school have proficiency with and an interest in STEM careers. Take it one step further to college and beyond, and you find that for each new graduate with a STEM degree, there are two and a half jobs. That means the need for professionals with STEM backgrounds is rapidly outpacing our ability to produce them. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, one million programming jobs will go unfilled by 2020 in the US alone. One might be compelled to act just by hearing those facts, but here at the show, we like to go a little deeper to explore some of the impacts of these trends and to see if there's something we're missing something not quite so obvious. Our first conversation today is with Frank Sesno. Frank's a master storyteller. He also happens to be the director of the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University. In a past life he was a journalist and anchor on CNN. He's currently working on a project called Planet Forward, harnessing the power of stories and new media to encourage innovation. He's here to tell us how the art of storytelling could help create a powerful message for the STEM community.
1: Probably the first story I remember telling was a senior thesis I wrote when I was in college and I bit off a very big bite but I was inspired by a movie I had seen a long time ago a movie with Dustin Hoffman and called Little Big Man and it was about um, American Indians, Native Americans and what had happened and I was so moved by that that I declared that as my senior thesis. And as I dug into that and I studied that and I read congressional testimony from the 1840s, 50s, and 60s and some of the things, terrible things that people said on the floor of the House of Representatives, this all sort of came to life to me. And and what was history became story. It was story about people and places and things and tragedies and amazing stuff. I've been moved by stories large and small um, which is why I, I, I know, I've seen, I've experienced that power of storytelling. And if you tell a story well about who you are and what you do and what moves you, you inform people You inspire people. You can help organize people. And you can do things in ways that we have never been able to do in the course of human history because we can reach and connect to so many so fast. It's
0: hard not to agree on some level with Frank. Stories have been humanity's way of sharing knowledge and compelling others to action since the invention of language. This leads us to Edie Fraser. If the story of STEM has a main character, it's Edie. She's the head of the DC-based STEM Connector, which bills itself as the nexus of public and private sector conversations surrounding STEM. This past April, STEM Connector hosted the Global STEM Talent Summit, bringing together hundreds of senior executives from some of the world's largest companies to talk about actions they can take to address the looming STEM talent shortfall. She's an incredibly gracious woman, whose accomplished past has put her at the center of where she is today.
3: It has been tremendous to have the opportunity to have done a great deal of public service, starting with my career at the Peace Corps and then the poverty program, and then 10 years of that, five years on both, being a desk officer for Africa, and then clearly going into the tough situations of the riots during the civil rights days and looking at our capacity of this country to change.
0: After those formative experiences, Edie went into communications, working for a national firm before starting her own. Her involvement with STEM began with a request.
3: We had a major company come and say, we're spending over a trillion dollars in the United States for STEM education, But no one knows who's doing what, what's effective, and what is the potential to scale what works. Could we build an ecosystem that would organize, particularly the private sector's effort, to focus on jobs and careers?
0: Jobs. That's what this is seemingly all about. You heard some of the numbers in the intro, and here's Edie sharing several more.
3: At least 80% of all jobs and skills are in science, technology, engineering, and math, and all the related areas. We believe that there are five million jobs open now where we don't have the skilled professionals, and we need to focus on women, on the minorities, on the underserved in the educational system. We've got two million cyber jobs open. In the U.S., we have one million healthcare jobs open and five million on a global basis. So what talent is possible? What can the companies and the private sector do? What is the role of the government? It is so exciting to see the states jump up in leadership because today there is so much challenge to the federal government. So we are looking to the states and with our Million Women Mentors effort, we've been able to galvanize nearly 36 states already. We're going to 50. And we've done that to absolutely put together the private sector, lieutenant governors, governors, organizations, women's organizations, everyone working together to leverage leadership. As the governor of Tennessee taught us and we stole it from him with his permission, K to J, that means kindergarten through jobs. When we say jobs, it's not only entry level jobs, it's continuing education because everything about STEM is lifelong learning and it goes all the way up to the boardroom.
0: In case you were wondering, the group Edie referenced, Million Women Mentors, is a STEM connector initiative to encourage interest in STEM fields among girls at a young age. She's set a goal of having a million mentors fostering curiosity and inquiry by the year 2020. Impressively, she's already over 600,000. Now back to jobs. We certainly know of the classic STEM fields, but I was curious to see where else STEM shows up. I talked to Steve Cox, a former officer in the military, about his personal experience with STEM.
4: If if I try to put this in a a bit of a STEM context, and and certainly let me say this up front, the the United States military is is technologically oriented. It is high tech. Uh, It is keeping pace with the digital age and will only continue to do so going forward. Uh, so make no mistake about what uh, what warfighting is today or what warfighting is going to be in the future. It is going to be uh, data-based, technically oriented, uh, and executed uh, specifically from a STEM perspective. I, I'll, I'll tell you, at least for me, from uh, from a personal experience, uh, the the biggest advance that um, you know that I leveraged uh, was GPS navigation. Uh, and it sounds simple today. It's, you know, it almost sounds funny to say it today. It's like wow, yeah, you know, Sean, we had this thing called a GPS. It was crazy. You know, because, you know, everybody's got it today. You've got it in your your phone. We all use it, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, daily. Um, but, at that, but at that time, you know, 25-plus years ago, uh, the ability to navigate the deserts of Kuwait and Saudi Arabia via GPS, when there are very few terrain features to, to navigate from, uh, was absolutely invaluable. And that's both, you know, personal navigation, me getting from point A to point B, uh, but, frankly, it was also uh, instrumental in— Telling aircraft where to drop their bombs, telling artillery where to shoot from—you uh, know—you absolutely had to have that GPS navigation. So that was a, um, you know, not not the first time the uh, the United States military had ever used it, but it was uh, it was an enormous um, uh, application uh, across the across the battlefield in the, in that first Gulf War.
0: It's been some time since Steve was in the military, but the experience has stayed with him including his appreciation for STEM. He offers a unique perspective having relied on it for his success on the battlefield. When we look out at the challenges we face as a society many in the STEM community can't help but cite some of the macro trends we hear about and their corollary impacts. I spoke to Dr. Mahmoud Khan. He's the vice chairman and chief scientific officer of PepsiCo. Most people on the planet have heard of Pepsi. After all, they're the largest food and beverage company in the U.S., Russia, India, and the Middle East. Every day, 1.3 billion people consume one of their products. Their reach and influence goes far and wide. I asked his take on what we face from the highest levels of perspective. Well, if I was to
5: look at it overall, how do we continue to feed a planet It's going to have nine and a half billion people, 98% of whom buy from the food and beverage industry, the private sector. How do we continue to feed that rapidly growing population with the minimal impact on the planet they live on? That's
0: the challenge. PepsiCo is paying close attention to the evolving situation, knowing that the impacts of losing focus could be global. Now let's get back to Steve. After Steve retired from the military, he jumped into the private sector. He currently works for a company called Sodexo. Sodexo plays a big game. It's one of the largest multinational companies in the world, with over 400,000 employees. They have two main offerings, food services and facilities management. And in layman's terms, it means they can build out your facility, manage its energy consumption, and feed the people in it too. They do it for governments and corporations all over the world. Here's what Steve says about their perspective of the changing landscape.
4: So let me um, uh, let me talk from a from you know from a kind of a macro perspective and then a sedexo perspective and then I'll, I'll bring it down to something that's you know more personally relevant. One of the major global mega trends that's out there is the exploding population, and then how does that exploding population live going forward? From a Sodexo perspective, we offer about a about hundred different types of services. So that concept of how do you feed you know, across a nine billion population uh, is critically important from a Sodexo perspective. And then how do you feed in terms of you know, demographics? You know, it's, it's everything from uh, uh, you know, children who are hungry to adults who have special needs to an aging population that has particular dietary concerns. You know, there's the, uh, the issue of allergens uh, you know, associated with food. How do you accommodate that with an exploding population? So, you know, from our perspective, being in the food service business and being in the outsourced business, serving clients across, you know, seven, eight different industries, suddenly we've got, a, we've got a science problem. You know, we've got a technology problem. We've got an engineering problem. We've got a math problem to figure out uh, not just today but going forward. And that problem gets more and more complicated as we go forward. So in terms of our own hiring practices at Sodexo, you know, do we need nutritionists? Absolutely. We need folks with deep understanding of, uh, of how food is grown, how it's sourced, how it moves through a, uh, a very complex supply chain, how it's preserved along the way, how we cut down waste, you know, how we make best use out of that, uh, that limited resource, you know, food, uh, that we have going forward.
0: Feeding a burgeoning population isn't the only challenge that Steve and his team are actively working on.
4: Big issue on the facilities management side of our business uh, is energy. You know, what about energy? Uh, how do we reduce uh, energy consumption? What are the different types of energy? You know, wind, solar, water. Uh, how do we reduce carbon emissions? Uh, so there's, the, there's a range of factors. I mean, I could go on, there's, the, there's dozens of different factors associated with uh, energy production, energy consumption, and uh, energy waste, and then the residual effects of, uh, of energy. So, you know, from a Sodexo perspective, uh, there's, a, there's a compelling need to have folks who are trained in the, I'll just call it the energy business, the energy space, who understand it from a, uh, from a technical standpoint. There is a compelling need from a Sodexo perspective to hire those people so that we can leverage them uh, for our business, for our clients. But there's a greater good perspective to reduce energy consumption, to get smarter about it, uh, to be cleaner about it, uh, to waste less, you know, to recycle.
0: At this point, I was wondering, what's happening to cause such a STEM talent shortage? This is where John Clifton comes in. He's a managing partner at the Gallup organization. His team just released the 2016 Global Great Jobs Report. The key distinction here is great. So Right now, I think there are a lot of
2: American leaders that are celebrating the fact that unemployment has come back down to 5%, at least to where it was, upwards of 10% during the global economic crisis. Uh, But the challenge with that is is that much of that is attributed to people getting part-time jobs who want full-time work, and the other big one is people who have just fallen out of the workforce. They've, quite frankly, given up. Ten years ago, we did a global survey, and we found that the single biggest issue facing the world today is jobs what the whole world wants today is a good job now if that is the single biggest issue facing the world we need better metrics for it because right now leaders are held to the lowest common denominator in terms of job creation we look at this figure called unemployment Um, and what we really need to be focused on is what percent of people don't have any work at all we should be looking at the percent of people who have great work and sometimes that great work can be subjective which is why we're going in and asking them about their job whether or not they have the resources they need to do their job effectively, whether they know what they're supposed to be doing, Uh, but the big one is whether or not they have the ability to do what they do best. Um, So that figure uh, is a lot more shocking than sort of the ILO's figure of 5.9%. That would almost suggest that there isn't a global jobs problem.
0: Quick aside, ILO stands for the International Labor Organization. It's the UN's agency that sets labor standards, develops policies, and devises programs promoting decent work for all women and men. Now back to John.
2: Our figure, which says that only 183 million people on the planet out of roughly 3.2 billion people who want a great job actually have a great job, that shows a little bit more accurately in terms of what the global jobs crisis actually is. Great work doesn't mean a big paycheck. Great work means a job that you're in that allows you to use your strengths. And those are the types of metrics that we're trying to add to this conversation. Some of the questions that we ask in terms of quality of job are things like, do you know what's expected of you at work? Amazingly, half of people around the planet can't strongly agree to that item. That means that when they show up to work, they don't even really fully know what they're supposed to do. You kind of wonder what that could do to the global economy if we just corrected that one particular issue, if people just knew what they were supposed to do when they came into the office every single day. We partnered with the uh, ILO in order to develop the survey questions that we're asking. So we model exactly what the Bureau of Labor Statistics is doing or any sort of central statistics office around the planet. But how we get people to respond to our surveys is, is two things. In the developed world, like the United States or France, we're doing phone surveys. So we call mobile phones, we call landline phones. But for the rest of the world, almost 80%, we're doing face-to-face interviewing. And we don't just do capital cities, we actually go out into the hinterlands, which makes it far more expensive. Um, So in the 150 countries where we are, we're going out into some of the most far off distant places, um, actually negotiating with some of our partners about gas prices because they need to drive a few hours in order to capture one interview. Um, So we really are in places like Swaziland. Uh, We've been in Somalia the past two years. We've been in Iraq and Afghanistan for the past decade. So this is not just a survey of OECD countries. Um, this is a truly global survey.
0: The message is clear. Relying on basic measures, such as unemployment, won't give us the information we need to make the important decisions regarding the challenges we face. If a majority of the world is stuck with a job they don't consider to be great, what do STEM employers need to know about making great jobs, and for that matter, great lives? There. Are five major
2: drivers of a great life. The single biggest driver uh, is a great job. And the reason it's a great job is because the single biggest driver is someone's purpose. And most people manifest their purpose through their job. Um, The other things are things like community well-being, social well-being is another big one, physical well-being and financial well-being. Here in the United States, um, you know, we've really looked at issues of debt, for example. College debt is a major issue. In fact, if somebody has over $50,000 of college debt at any point in their life, Um, it actually leaves an emotional scar on them for the rest of their life, even after they've paid off the $50,000. So we know that uh, financial well-being is a key aspect of how somebody lives their
0: life. That last one is particularly interesting. Looking at some of the numbers with regards to student debt, we can see that it's reached a tipping point. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that in 2016, the average student borrower would have over $37,000 in debt. That's a lot of money and frighteningly close to the $50,000 emotionally scarring limit John mentioned. Knowing that the education system is the incubator for most of today's STEM professionals, I went and spoke with someone who's leading the charge of its inevitable transformation. Her name is Ruth Valoria.
6: So I'm the executive dean of the business school at the University of Phoenix, but I have quite an unusual path into an education position. Um, I am a STEM major from college. I did chemistry over in the UK and I did chemistry because I wanted to help change the world. I wanted to reinvent a drug or something that would have lasting impact on society. But as I was recruited um, out of Oxford, there were a lot of big time management consulting firms there and they helped me see how analytical thinking hypothesis frameworks and experimentation were actually going to be very interestingly applied in the business world. And so I went to join one of the top you know, global management consulting firms for a few years. I was with Booz Allen and Hamilton, as they were then. And I worked on issues of technology, of TV station growth and um, cell phone coverage. And we built S-curve models of you know, the, the phone penetration um, that was going to take place in Europe. And I am now at the University of Phoenix running our largest school at the University of the Business School and we take in, we have 65,000 students, 60% of them are learning fully online, another 40% will go in and study at one of our uh, physical locations, we have them in 67 locations across the country today, and um, we are helping them get ready for a future career in business. And uh, you know the vision of the University of Phoenix is that we want to become their most trusted provider of career-relevant higher education for working adults. And in the business school, the convergence of the STEM field and the business field, they're really inseparable. And so I'm super excited to be in business at this time of the promotion of STEM because technology, the digital world, the internet of things is radically changing business and changing education.
0: Radical is a strong word. The education system has been operating in much of the same way for the better part of a century. But as Ruth indicated, the advancement of technology and these macro trends, such as the Internet of Things, are disrupting the pace at which students need to be comprehending materials. It's also changing the way education is delivered. Here's Ruth again.
6: There was a lot of sage on the stage, right? That's the expression that we use for education in the old style. I mean, I went through higher education this way large lecture halls, the expert is out there on the platform, your job is to listen, take notes, and then to somehow work out how to apply that right behind the scenes to the examination. Uh, Education today is a lot more self-driven. So there's so many resources that are out there for people to learn from. The job of the faculty member is less about spouting the knowledge for you to learn, but more teaching you where to find that information and then challenging you to apply that information in projects and case studies so that you can actually be ready when you leave the classroom to go and make a difference in a corporation. Employers are a little bit tired of taking folks who are graduating from college and then feeling like they have to spend the next two or three years getting them ready to actually perform on the job. The world is moving so much faster and so employees have to be able to hit the ground running, and education has not completely adapted to this yet, but increasingly I see signs that we're becoming more applied, more practical, so that people can really make an impact on day one. We have to be able to turn the professions that we have into blocks of skills and competencies that we need our employees to have. And we have to create a common currency around those competencies and skills. And then we need to be able to demonstrate, students need to be able to have their series of badges on LinkedIn that say, these are all the competencies that I have earned. And today you can take computer science in one school and it maybe means something that's 90 degrees different from computer science in another school. So we have to start breaking the education down and storing the education in these chunks, right? knowing what is the sequence of things that go against this objective which when mastered will demonstrate this competency. And today universities really operate at the course level and the program level, which doesn't really always say a lot about what the skills are. So the biggest underlying shift is for universities to be really aware what are the skills and competencies in demand and how are they constructed into the course of their programs and how do we measure that students have accomplished them and then share that with employers so that employers know the capabilities of the person that they're hiring.
0: Essentially, what many students have been learning in the lecture hall environment has been relatively useless in their professional careers. Not to say that I didn't learn a thing or two, but when I think back to my time at college, my pivotal moment occurred when Gary Vaynerchuk, an effusive and in-your-face entrepreneur from New Jersey, visited my elective class titled The Geography of Wine a few weeks before graduation. He presented the business case for entrepreneurship in a way that I hadn't experienced in my traditional business classes. I could go out and apply what he said that same day. It changed my trajectory. Some might say that because I was at school, on a campus, I had the opportunity, and that in and of itself is what college is all about. Certainly a valid point. So I asked Ruth the question, is what she's proposing the end of real college campuses?
6: So I. I... It's funny you say the word real campus, right? That, that kind of as, as a non-traditional institution um, gets under my skin a little bit because um, I mean, what you're saying is, is the traditional format of people sitting, right, in classrooms all day long going to go away. And um, absolutely, the, a program that is solely delivered in that way, I don't know how many more years that has left to live, but the future is the blend. The blend of the things that you can do online, the resources that you can tap into through the Internet, and a chance to have synchronous interactions with people that allow you to work on those employability skills, again, that we talked about today, the communication skills and the collaboration, the teamwork, how to think critically about problems together as a team. So you don't have to do that in large lecture halls, in universities that have massive football stadiums and all the other things that cost a lot of money. Um, for universities today. So there are ways to bring down the cost through the use of technology, but we also have to remember that, especially for students who have not been successful in high school, there is still a very important student support component. So they need that personal relationship building with faculty members. In our case, we do a lot of that with um, student academic counselors student financial advisors, and while definitely we have more to do to automate and make that more predictive model-based intervention, that is the future of sort of servicing of students in education. We have way more intelligence now through the use of data, how they interact with the classroom, the word choice even that they're using through text analytics in the way they write their posts even the words our faculty members choose. They can alert us to potential difficulties for students and then yes, you absolutely go down to intervention strategies at the unit of one and ultimately building programs. Um, That's a whole shift in the accreditation that is required to get there. But if you could imagine people assembling all of those Lego blocks of competencies into what they wanted to do, and having somebody say, yes, this is the equivalent of a degree for as long as that currency is still relevant. We still don't have that because we have regulatory constraints and things, and those mindsets also have to adapt and evolve.
0: The shift towards competencies-based education could be momentous. So what are the competencies we'd need to thrive in the future, and are they limited to just STEM? When talking to each of our guests, I asked them what they think are the most important things for future generations to know. The responses were insightful.
2: Leaders need to know the importance of helping people manifest their purpose in life. You know, the single region in the world that reports the lowest purpose-based well-being is the Middle East. And so you ask yourself with what happened in Egypt in 2011, what's happening, with the emergence of ISIS, if much of that has to do with the fact that there were people that when asked about whether or not they're fulfilling their purpose in life would largely say no to those questions. And I don't think it's just a problem with respect to the Middle East, it's a global problem. Um, So while it might not always trigger unrest, I think it also causes issue within workplaces. If you have somebody doing work within your own office that they were not really built to do I I think you're gonna have a really disgruntled employee so I think no matter what if you're a leader within uh, a company or a leader within a country I think one of the biggest things you need to be thinking about is helping people manifest and identify what their purpose is
4: critical thinking it's the ability to think critically about the problem at hand so it's the it's the deconstruction of the problem it's the ability to look at the various parts and understand how they might go back together differently to form a better solution. Uh, so I would tell you, regardless of what direction an individual might go from a STEM perspective, kind of the broader STEM perspective, every one of those individuals must have critical thinking in their, in their kit bag. Absolutely have to have it.
1: I think the most important and the most difficult thing to keep track of sometimes is um, some degree of optimism because we are awash especially this political season we are awash with pessimism doom gloom challenge everything's global everything's complex and people feel and it's very disorienting that they don't have control over their lives and their domains so i think that any future leader has to one recognize that we're talking in a global context now borders mean less they still matter but they mean less two yes it's complicated it's difficult it may even be existential if we get the climate challenge problem wrong, it really could be existential. We could see horrific change down the line. Um, And three, that we need to kind of put our brains around this in a holistic way. We are this incredibly ingenious species and I almost think that the biggest piece of leadership going forward is to not lose sight of that and to bring people around to harness their, their ingenuity and harness their creativity toward good ends and recognize that there are lots of good ends that are happening. That's why with this Planet Forward project, my focus is not on the problems and the politics. My focus is on the innovations. Because when you see what people are inventing, yeah, you learn and you realize, but you also are inspired and you have hope.
5: I think the most important thing is to surround in any complex problem, to include and surround yourself as a leader and as a team with people who have very different perspectives and diverse perspectives, and most importantly with diverse backgrounds. It's, they will start to challenge the assumptions, challenge the norms, and through that iterative process, you're going to come to a much better answer. At the end of the day, as a leader, you have to make a decision. You can't sit there paralyzed by the analysis process, but you have to have that perspective at the table. And in very simple terms, I always say, you know, ask yourself, what is it you need to do? Ask yourself, how you are going to get it done? But most importantly, ask yourself, should you do it? And the third question, in my experience, in my mind, is the most challenging. We will find technical solutions to a specific problem. Is it the right solution? Is it the right thing to do? Should we do it? That's usually the most complex, and that's where the ambiguity comes in and therefore you need that perspective scientists have to partner with not what we would traditionally call non-scientists although my definition of science as you heard today was is much broader than that
6: so it's going to be important to be a versatile right employee in the world of the future and know that you're going to have to reinvent yourself and be prepared for a journey of a lot more continuous learning everybody is going to have to be some type of digital citizen. So the digital skills gap is gonna keep accelerating, people are gonna have to keep investing in themselves and keep finding ways to do that. The good news is the internet makes it very easy for all those skills to be out there, for people to find self-paced ways to keep up to date. But I think um, the employees and leaders of the future have even a harder task than perhaps those of today because there's so much more personal responsibility on them to be able to lead others by staying abreast of everything that's changing.
0: Dr. Khan offers one final insight about the future. When I was growing up,
5: what we did in our household came from the parent to the child. We're living in an era where my children and now my grandchild is telling us, as parents, grandparents, what we should and shouldn't do. That has changed. That's never been the case in history. But this is a generation of young parents and children that are looking back at the boomers' generation, my generation, saying, well, we don't agree with this. You should do this. You should not do this. Even my grandchild, who's seven, has an opinion on what his granddad should eat or not eat. And I'm supposed to be the one trained in nutrition. And I think we need to listen. Because in that process, we will start to understand their generation's perspective, which is going to shape our thinking.
0: In closing, there is a new generation They will be facing global crises on a scale never before seen. They'll need every STEM professional they can get their hands on, and then some. Will it be enough? Only time will tell. Thanks for joining us today. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Perimeter Push. You can also send us an email at pushingtheperimeter at theclearing.com. Let us know your thoughts. We love when people have perspectives we didn't consider or let us know if you have a topic you think we should cover in a future episode. Thank you to our guests on today's show. I am humbled by each of their contributions to the conversation and to the world at large. Special thanks to STEM Connector, specifically Edie Fraser, Michael Dubois, and Jordan Bullock. Thank you to The Clearing for your support, especially our president, Tara, and our production team, Ron, Ayrton, Dan, Sarah, and Chris. I'm totally blown away by your talent and commitment. And finally, thank you to you guys The listeners, you stuck it through to the end,
3: now go do something extraordinary.